Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show, the home of amazing real-life stories, celebrity interviews and investigations. This time, Bruce Daisley, who fits at least the first two of those definitions, is a council house kid from Birmingham who went on to become European vice president of social media giant Twitter. He's also a best-selling author with his book, The Joy of Work, rebadged in the United States as Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, which is also the name of his hugely successful podcast, a regular feature at the top of the iTunes charts. I was keen to hear more about Bruce's amazing life story, why he had left Twitter and what lies ahead for him. I met him at the H Club in Covent Garden in London. Hello, Bruce. Hello there, Adrian. Good to see you. Uh, well, you're flourishing, even though, as we speak, you've only very recently left your job at Twitter. I'll talk about that in a bit, but how does this story begin then? A council house kid from Birmingham ends up being in the vanguard of the digital economy. Um, uh, that makes it sound like there was either a master plan or that it's somehow, by a grand design, more than anything, it's sort of, you know, more than a decent amount of luck. But um, I'm very fortunate that probably the job that got me the job at Twitter was a job at YouTube. And um, I was very fortunate to be working at YouTube and a part of Google. And what I discovered there was there's a big company with a lot of people there. What I discovered was there was a lot of people with overlapping jobs. And I very quickly thought, I'm going to have to find a niche for myself here. And it's going to be just evangelizing the delights of YouTube. And that got me to the attention of Twitter. So uh, sort of a lot of good fortune along the way. But... More than anything, I guess it was sort of normally trying to carve out a role where I felt like, okay, at least I can be doing something of value here. I'm guessing that when you left school, social media as we know it today didn't really exist. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, my original intention, that I, I, I went to university, but uh, my original intention was to try and find some sort of professional job. I applied for legal jobs along the way. I don't think I was necessarily... Uh, well matched to that in the sense that I hadn't spent any time really investigating what the the day-to-day realities of a solicitor's job were and so that pretty quickly became apparent and I just thought I'm going to apply for jobs at uh, I applied for a job at Radio WM and I applied for um, jobs in record companies so you know I didn't really I I guess you know if I was going to project the problems that I were of my own creating onto other people I'd say it's just a lack of any um, careers advice. I had one sort of 10-minute careers session at school. But a lack of any careers advice meant that I was clueless. Well, I, same, same here. I mean, working-class kid goes to university. That, you know, first one in my family, as I think you were yeah. in your family. But what did you want to do? What, what did I want to do? Uh, I think in the end, actually, I wanted to do what I do now. Right, right, right. But I think I was a bit embarrassed about wanting mm. to do what I do now. And it wasn't really something that anybody I knew did being a journalist, it felt like a, a different world to me. And, and I guess it's the nature of those careers sessions that to some extent their job is to give you a dose of reality. So that if you said, I want to be a journalist or a radio journalist, it's so unlikely by the rules of probability they might be doing you a disservice by saying, yeah, go for it, kid. But it, as a consequence, you do end up with a lot of people who say, I was scared to reveal my vulnerability of the dream job I wanted um, it, I, I know sort of you know data wise statistics wise it's probably survivors bias so you know people like you who wanted to be a radio uh, journalist and became a radio journalist well of course we only see you and there was probably another 200 who wanted to do your job that we don't see but I, yeah you know 
I'm, I'm not sure. I don't want to blame the system completely because I think that's sort of, it's an easy cop-out for us to, to blame our problems on other people. But um, yeah, th- there is something, I'd love to see a more effective way of directing people towards something they feel that is more their vocation. And there was a story about you doing a cartoon as your CV. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, more than anything, I'd, I'd sort of graduated from university in the middle of... What, was you, what did you graduate in? Economic history. So from York and uh, sort of started off as economics, became economic history. But um, more than anything, I spent sort of 12 months when I graduated doing bar work, hotel work, restaurant work. And I thought, you know, if this carries on, um, probably, you know, it'll be one of those things where you don't necessarily have a proper career, like, you know, um, but you're more, you sort of, you resourcefully climb your way from these restaurant jobs, bar jobs, which wasn't my intention. And I drew this cartoon CV merely as, a, as an attempt to think, uh, I'd, I'd done something first where I'd drawn, uh, I'd, I'd done my applications on yellow paper and tried to stand out and that was getting nowhere. And by drawing this like <coughs> quite amateurish cartoon, it it achieved the job of getting attention from people. So think, what, what job did that get you in the end? Not yes. a cartoonist. Yes, so, <laughs> I mean, I ended up getting um, interviews and job offers. I got a job offer from Virgin Records as their post boy. And I was, you know, it's, it's, even though I sort of seemed to be dismissive of working my way up in the restaurant business, but I thought, well, if I could get a job as a post boy at Virgin Records and just be the eagerest, most enthusiastic person there then hopefully at some point people say, you know, there's other jobs. And people said, um, people said that you could work your way up from that. So I was very willing to be the post boy there. Unfortunately, I, um, the, as the woman uh, offered me the job, Karen Harris offered me the job, she said, so your job is going to be to drive to Labrook Grove Post Office every day and, you know, CDs and, and vinyl in those days uh, and drop off the records and collect it, what, any, anything that's come back. And I said, OK, um, just to let you know, I don't have a driving licence, but uh, here's what I'll do. I'll take, and I'd already t- taken one of those, they're called crash tests, but, you know, accelerated tests, and they'd cancelled the driving test on the day of it. So I knew I'd sort of got two weeks of intensive driving already. I said, why don't I do another one of those tests... You can always arrange driving tests very short term. No one knows that. But um, why don't I take a test two weeks on Friday? If I pass it, I'll start the following Monday. I mean, logistical nightmare. But um, I'll start the following Monday. If I don't, then, you know, I'll hand you the job back. And I fail my driving test. Oh! <laughs> and? <laughs> so phoned her and said, look, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to be able to take the job. And then you're not allowed to take another test, I think, for two months or at least a month. So, you know, there was no way that I could guarantee that a, a month hence I could start. So I gave her the job back. I think I spent another four months unemployed after that. Oh, right. So she said, yeah, fine, then you failed. You haven't got the job. You know, I, I mean, I have thought about whether it was sort of a test of my own resilience, ability to negotiate, whether I could have, in hindsight, I could have said... You know, I, I sort of navigate my way to it. I I think I saw it resolutely that I'd failed my side of a bargain that I'd done. So you know, in, I did actually. I'm, I'm not remotely reflective. So it was only about twelve months ago that I thought, oh, I wonder if actually I should have said, you know, 
here's the short-term solution, here's the long-term solution. It never occurred to me, and I've never, sort of, I've never had, you know, one of the benefits, personality types, right, but one of the benefits I, I've had is that I've never sat there and thought, what, what if? So even though I was back to doing 3 a.m. shifts in bars and restaurants and convention centre, um, I, uh, I, I, never, I never once sat there going, oh, if only I'd passed that, I'd be doing this. No, it's just like, oh. That's a shame. Get on with it. Next thing. Yeah. So very. Lo- I think that's just a fortunate accident of ge- genetics. I don't. I don't think there's anything sort of uh, learned skill in that. So at what point in your personal evolution does digital media come onto the horizon? You know, you're you're somebody who was not a teenager when we had social yeah, media. Yeah. So when does this yeah. suddenly become present in your life? Do you remember that there's people of a certain age that will remember well? They were sort of. Um, uh, gradually sweeping of computers into offices, and this is going to make certainly me and you nodding <laughs> sound, sound medieval. But do you remember they were sort of, you know, it, it, it really does. Well, I used to run a football fanzine, and our first episodes were run on uh, this was in the mid 80s football fanzine, which we originally typed and laid out on big sheets. Uh, and they'd either go off to a printer, in some cases they'd be photocopied, and then Sir Alan Sugar brought out the Amstrad 8256, the word processor that revolutionised the world of self-publishing. You Mm. could create a magazine through a word processor. You still had to print the pages off and lay them on sheets. You were no longer reliant on the typewriter. You could make mistakes. Mm. That that was revolutionary. Mm. Absolutely, and it's it's sort of embarrassing to reflect on these things. But um, so, but what happened at that stage was that people started getting home computers <laughs> that were connected to the internet. And I got my home computer principally to access Amazon because I loved buying books. And you know, again, a relic of the past. But if you, if the book that you what you wanted wasn't available in Waterstones or Hudson's in Birmingham, if it wasn't available there, you'd have to request it, and it would they would phone you back if they were going to be able to get it, and it was going to be like eight weeks time. And so the fact that on Amazon it was called Book Pages in the UK at the time, um, but on Book Pages you could order any book, and it would turn up in seven days probably at the time. It was like this revelation to me so uh, I was I, I um, had that and then in the magazine radio company I worked at there were opportunities to work on the digital side of things so I sort of probably 1997 yeah so who was that then who was the that was EMAP it was called EMAP so publisher of um, Heat magazine and, and latterly sort of things like Closer magazine but also you know the broadcaster of Kiss and Magic and so you'd obviously got uh, an eye for the media generally. You were somebody who was interested in media, working in media, and you saw this new thing emerging. And, uh, I mean, in the early days of the internet, there were a, a couple of false dawns, weren't there? There was a, a dot-com bubble, amongst other things. Yeah, very much so. You know, I, th- I think there was... Um, well, it, it, there was sort of a lot of illusions around it. There were a lot of sort of, you know, no one was really clear whether it was going to be a viable business. But you, I don't know if you remember, even just going back a decade, when fa- or I don't know when Facebook IPO'd, maybe seven or eight years ago, um, but when Facebook first floated, everyone said, you know, this is, this is a hoax, this business will never be profitable, it's, you know, it's, it's a nonsense business. So there's been so many people who tried to be definitive in their opinions and often have, have you know been resolutely wrong as a result and the truth is 
mostly nobody knows, yeah, do that's they? That's right, that's right. So YouTube comes about then, and you get you get into YouTube pretty early on. Yeah, so um, what happened was I left that publishing business, um, EMAP, and then I was sort of looking for work, jobs to go to, and I, uh, I almost went for a job at MySpace. I, I, in fact, I accepted a job at MySpace, which is like, you know, a, a degree of vanity because the, the notion that you know, it was going to be you know, effectively running the UK office. But um, the, the, the idea in our head that, oh, yeah, no, our, our input will be transformative. And, you know, it's vanity. It's like, yeah, I'll go in there. I'll be able to have an impact on it. And then I remember telling a few friends that I was going to go to MySpace. And, you know, these were people who, one guy who used to share his wife's email address, you know, it was like he was not a digital native. And he said, they're effed, aren't they? And, um, and I thought, well, if he knows MySpace are in trouble, then, you know, they most definitely are. And then I got approached by Google while I still had the job off from MySpace. And I thought, um, I thought oh, I'll go there. I love YouTube. They're just that second bought YouTube. I thought, I wonder if I could, you know, put my hand up and volunteer to work on YouTube. And in fact, what I discovered was... Um, you know, there's an old adage, and it's probably a truism to a large extent, which is, you know, follow the money. People want to be associated with the big money. And in that company, Google at the time was about a tenth of the size of it is now in terms of employees. But um, at that time, everyone wanted to be associated with things that were successful. So when I put my hand up and said, I'll work on YouTube, um, it seems strange at the time, but there, was n- there weren't a lot of people volunteering to do the same you know, because it, what it wasn't successful at the time. It was seen as dogs on skateboards. I think <laughs> the the view at the time was that Google had paid heavily for it. They'd paid 1.8 billion um, pounds, and um, the view at the time was, "Wow, that'll never make money." Google's basically bought it to take it off the table, a bit like Facebook did with WhatsApp. You know, Facebook WhatsApp's nowhere near making money. But a lot of people thought if they didn't buy it, that maybe it would become this WeChat of the West. So you got in then. You cleverly saw which way it was going. Was that driven partly just because you liked it? I, Did love you- it. I mean, I just like, you know, for, for me, a website that will ignite the interest and the passions of seven year old kids and 70 year old grandparents and, uh, and everything else along the way. I, I, I just find it. One day I was chatting to someone last week for my podcast and he said, you know, that while books have always been an important route to market for, he's like this philosopher guy, but roots, books have always been an important route to market, but the democratizing and universal impact of YouTube is, you know, it's like the printing press of the modern age. It's like it, it, rev- it democratizes learning in a way really that exceeding, exceeds the power of books. So you get a job at Twitter then. This is the next wave, really, isn't it, of social media, properly into what we used to call the Internet 2.0 at the point at which Twitter starts emerging. You're Vice President Europe. What's that? What what, what did you do all day? Yeah, I mean, I I often didn't use to use the title Vice President because (laughs) it's... Good one, though, isn't it? It's baffling, isn't it, to... to, Very very American. Yeah, it's baffling to British ears. It's sort of... It's almost estranging because immediately it sort of... It makes it seem non-British. It seems... It makes it seem sort of alienating. What did I do? So, broadly, my responsibility was in three areas. Reputation, audience, and revenue. So, reputation you might have a situation where either on a positive side of things, you know, there's an election coming up, we want 
all of the candidates to feel that they can use Twitter or that, you know, someone inspirational like Greta Thunberg is, is actively using a platform like Twitter. How can we help her feel like it's working for her and she understands it? So that could be connecting with footballers, musicians, politicians, but also, you know, small groups of you know, the people who, who don't have those those platforms and those advantages. So how can you help all of those people? What are the programs you can create to do that? Then uh, that, that sort of builds the reputation of it. And sometimes these times where you're in a defensive mode, where the, the Twitter product is in the news for the wrong reasons. So what could you do to turn that around? Maybe meeting football organisations and sort of, you know, helping them overcome maybe challenges they've got. Uh, then audience, so it's like trying to grow the audience, you know, and when I joined Twitter, it had about 5 million users in the UK. It's sort of closer to about 15, 16, 17 now. And then the final one is is revenue. So it's, it's ultimately all of these internet products that we know and love are paid for by, principally by advertising. There's a bit of licensing money as well but principally by advertising, what could we do to make sure that, that, uh, that advertisers like it and that they're comfortable with spending their money on it? Mm. I'm a very enthusiastic Twitter user. I love it for pushing out the podcasts and the vlogs that I do, so uh, I'm certainly not anti-Twitter by any stretch of the imagination, but Twitter has been criticised, I think with some justification. It's given a platform at times to some pretty unpleasant people, people on the far right in particular, but other people pornographers have been able to use Twitter. How conscious of that were you? You must have been aware of that and the criticisms that were aimed at the company when you were VP Europe. Yeah, I, th- I think broadly what I would say is that all social platforms, so, so to start, mm. all social platforms generally reflect the society they're in. So look, you know, what are the things that we've been reminded of for all digital products in the last 10 years is that there's, like, there's a lack of empathy between people um, you know, and you witness that in computer gamer communities. So, you know, people who are playing PlayStation together, something goes wrong. There's often, they use the sort of, the, the abusive term gay, they'll just call each other gay. And when you confront gamers in that community and say, right, why are you abusing each other? They don't see themselves as the problem. They say, oh, I was just joking. I was just, you know, so it's just a good reminder that we often don't perceive the harm that our words can do, or we don't even construe the other person in the discussion as a fully formed real person. And so you witness that on all social products. The, what I would say is that in the time I was there, I, I replied to sort of every real person who got in touch with me. And when I first started, I would characterise the first couple of years, it was a lot of women who felt like they were being stalked or or hassled by men Um, and by the end it was principally people saying to me my account has been suspended what can I do to get it back Mm. and that for me is a good redressing of the balance that you know the the burden should be on the offenders not on the victims yeah although I mean even today there will be pretty abusive language used won't there it begs the bigger question of whether there should be more of a, a curatorship by Twitter, particularly, but also other social media platforms, but because of your past with yeah. Twitter, we're talking about Twitter, that there should be a greater curatorship, that it isn't enough to say there are these people exercising their free speech. We, at some point, 
if we're drawn into the argument, we'll shut down an account. But actually, your curatorship should be much more proactive. So as a thought experiment, that's a really interesting one for anyone to sit there with a sort of, you know, over a meal one day to say, how would that work? Because that's the critical thing, you know. I think anyone is anyone who works in that world, in that technology world, is very aware of the ups and downs. And so consequently, there's, there's a perennial debate, an open discussion, what could any of us do to solve these things? Now, you use the word curating there. So if, if, I guess effectively you're suggesting that maybe there's, there's a degree of supervision or there's a degree of watching over. So if you work on the basis this half a billion tweets every day, okay, describe to me the, you know, the interesting thing over your dinner party discussion, describe to me the model where it's supervised. So will it be pre-checked like it is in China or will it be post-checked? So will it be that you're watching the Liverpool game, you tweet out there's a goal, and then someone just needs to check your tweet? Hang on, when's my tweet going live? When's well, my tweet going live? Well, I suppose the balance between that would be to say that there should be a greater degree of human intervention but, in, in, that, in but, that process. But tell me how, but tell me how. So would it be before it goes live, the tweet? No, ideally, I mean, again, I haven't, had, I haven't, had, I haven't okay. had the job of, of trying to monitor this, but I, I would say uh, a post-checking system, you'd like to encourage okay. the, the notion of freedom of speech, but that if the, if the concerns are flagged, that they're acted on more proactively yeah. and that there are more human beings involved in that process than I perhaps incorrectly perceive to be the case at the moment. Yes, yeah, so the interesting thing is, so, so as I left Twitter, about the, just past a milestone where over half of all the things that are actioned are actioned before a person gets them. So if you understand sort of the... It, it, let's sort of try and imagine the process. So um, that the burden used to be on someone who was receiving abuse. They needed to, you know, have their experience assailed with that abuse then they needed to say that's bad enough that I'm going to take action then they needed to report it then they needed to wait to see if something happened and over half of the abuse that's happening now is done without a human ever seeing it so that's one stage how because machine learning and computers are much better at spotting patterns of these things than humans are so let's go through a scenario where you might see that typically um what happens is trolling behaviour, people often create what we call a sock puppet account. So, you know, if you've got your main Goldberg radio account or whatever it is, you don't want to lose that. You've got thousands of followers that you've built over time, but you want to call a villa fan a curse word. And so what you, what the typical behaviour of a troll is, is that they create another account, which then they immediately, they type, they get... Jack Grealish's Twitter, and they, they, they send uh, a message to him. Now, um, a human can sort of spot that and can work through a checklist. A computer spots that instantly. So a new, new account created that goes immediately to tweeting that doesn't follow any other accounts, that skips all the setup, all of those things are red alerts. And so consequently, if the tweet that's sent includes a swear word in it, it's like, okay, well, we know what's going on here, but additionally... Um, what the, the technology will allow, allow you to do is to say, does this person have any other accounts? Because not only are we going to take down this one, but we're going to take down those ones as well. Mm-hmm. And so it, very quickly, stuff that humans just couldn't immediately do, and I, I strongly understand your point about human review, a, a sort of post-check, 
but sometimes computers can work far quicker. So it's a bit like having a, um, it's a bit like having a fire alarm in your house, or you know, having the the fire brigade nearby. The fire brigade nearby is never going to be as effective at spotting a fire as having a fire alarm in your house. But still, we get people like MPs like Jess Phillips, female Mm -hmm. MPs in particular, uh, of whatever political persuasion if they're high profile, getting some of the most vile abuse and trolling on Twitter. Now, I accept that that may be retrospectively dealt with. I don't want to live in a country like China where all tweets have to be checked beforehand. But certainly I think people like Jess Phillips would say that you don't do enough to prevent harmful, aggressive, abusive trolls threatening rape, threatening violence against women. Yeah, look, you know, I think... Anyone who does a job like that is involved in constant internal debates about where the line should be set. And so, you know, inevitably, these big discussions about, I think, when the internet first came along, there was, there was a, an abundance of optimism where people said, well, let free speech win the day, and if someone's behaving badly, then the community will police that. And I think over the course of time, what you realise is that that, that ceases to be... Um, the, the ground for optimism seems seems to be the sort of the ones that win the day, and then you start going, okay, maybe we'd need a few more rules. And in the time that I was there, the rules became far more onerous. In fact, as I as I left just now, you can no longer just go onto Twitter and call someone a swear word, which you know you might see as um, you might see as well, you, depending on your extremes. Some people believe it's their human right to call David Cameron a egg-headed c-word they like they believe it's like you know no one will deny them their their um, birthright but broadly it's okay let's try and set the bar of niceness to a higher level um look there is always internal debate i think broadly the people working in the uk generally had a more um a, different, a slightly different perspective, but ultimately, you know, the, the truth when you're involved in any decisions like that is that you've got to disagree and commit. So you, like, while you might vehemently disagree, I think we're making the wrong decision on this or a wrong decision on that or the right decision. This, the right decision looks like this. Once you leave the room, you've got to commit to, okay, well, this is what we're going with. So I think, you know, it's fair to say there was very... I saw, and I think anyone in that position like that, sees their role as, go fight your fights constantly internally you go like you, you know you go sort of you go stand the corner of what you think to be right but of course you know you've got to do the job of, of trying to project the final decision you can't be a rogue person inside sure was there any anything in the way of that kind of dispute that led you to leave twitter oh no no at all i mean i've been there eight years sort of you know um very uh after, after that stage you know i've been sort of at Google for five years. I was doing an international job at Twitter, which involved a lot of travelling. And for both ecological reasons and um, and just like the, the toll on me, I just didn't want to do that much, that many flights anymore. We'll come to the ecology, because I know that's something that is very important to you. But I do want to talk about your book, which has been hugely successful as well. Maybe it's a sign of the times. In the 1970s, one of the big bestsellers was called The Joy of Sex, in 2020, we have a bestseller called The Joy of Work. <laughs> what, a, what a sign of shifting priorities and, and sensibilities. But in a very crowded market of business books, you've carved out a niche, created a bestseller, 
And a podcast as well. Yeah, that all came specifically from um, me trying to get my head around how I could improve the work that I, the workplace that I was in. I think you know, I was chatting to someone yesterday, in fact, and they said, you know, more and more there's a changing expectation about what people's relationship with their job will be. I think probably the relationship that a lot of us have forged with our jobs has become a little bit toxic in the last few years where we we feel beaten up either at the end of the week or certainly at the end of the year we feel you know sort of we exhale and we're exhausted like oh I can't do that again you know sort of go home to a bucket of wine and sort of you know debate how long you can do this and I think a lot of us have been feeling that and I was definitely feeling it myself and I was witnessing it amongst people and you know the moment you're sitting there and you're thinking Right, should I go and set up a market stall? Shall I go and shall I, shall I just abandon the rat race? Then it's probably a sign not that you're doing something wrong, but that the system's doing something wrong. But the, these these experiences as well, and that I'm sure that experience will resonate with many people listening to this. It's such a common phenomenon. Few of us are a few of us are lucky enough to do jobs that we love doing. But I know in a, in a recent podcast you were talking with uh, Alan Devoton about yeah. you know the idea of the vocation. Yeah can actually be misleading and dangerous because most people don't do a job that's their vocation. Yeah, well, the two things. Well, firstly, the idea that our job should fulfil that role for us is a really recent advent. You know, the idea that any of us would be doing something better this year than we were last year or any sort of career progression is a construction since the 1970s, really. You know, people did jobs, 70s, 80s, 90s. People did jobs that their parents had done, you know, the, whatever you did, and you you worked on the same production line, you worked in the same agricultural business, you, you did the same job forever. You, there was no notion that you were meant to be getting on. And then, by extension, there was no notion that if you weren't progressing, that you were somehow, by default, slipping behind. And all of these things are sort of recent inventions, but they they work to make us all feel inadequate. And so that's it, you know. So, so number one, I don't think people should feel that they, they, they are defined by their job. I don't feel that anyone should feel inadequate if they're not getting on in their job. But, you know, you witness this in retail shop jobs. You re- witness this in sort of restaurant jobs. There can be a real dignity in people feeling like they're doing their job well. They're amongst people they like. You know, it's, you sort of witness that dignity when you chat to firefighters, when you chat to hospital workers when, when they're, sort of, they're well resourced when, you, when people feel like their job is something where they can do it to the best of their abilities and there's, there's respect paid in all places there's a real dignity to work that I think you know if you look at the stats of it people who don't have a job um, are more likely to suffer depression than people who, who do they die earlier you know there is something about our human identity that it shouldn't be excessively defined by our jobs, but it is can be defined by us feeling like we we are appreciated in the work we do. Yeah, our job doesn't have to define us, but it should be fulfilling, yeah. shouldn't it? And you've got thirty points in your book. We won't go through all of them here, but one of them is about empowering people as a manager. Mm. If people have got an idea, let them go away and work on it. You don't necessarily have to be present in the office all the time. Just get the result, and as long yeah. as you get the result. That's fine. There's a strange thing about um, our notions of control and uh, 
and hierarchy. So, you know, all of us, when we, we may be sort of, if you were doing word association and you thought stress at work, and you, you might think of the boss having a heart attack, you know, like something like that. In fact, stress generally correlates inversely with power. So, um, so the boss is far less likely to have a heart attack than, than the security guard who's been shouted at or the, you know, the person, the, the nurse is far less likely to have a heart attack than the surgeon. You know, paradoxically, we, we might see it the other way around. And it's because people who have no voice, they have no control, they have no input, their experience of work is, a, is often a lot worse. And I think, you know, that was... I worked in fast food places, I worked in bars, worked in restaurants, but you could tell really quickly when there was a good vibe to places. And, you know, in my sort of professional office jobs, these, whether it's in my friend's jobs or my job, you could tell in the places that had a good kinetic energy to them like they're good a good buzz almost and so that was my feeling what could um i wanted to write like it's 30 things so I, I wanted to write like a cookbook that was specific to me it was like when the team doesn't feel like they're getting on with each other what could i do when the team doesn't feel like when the team feel overworked what could i do when the team and, and so what were the in the same way like a cookbook you know you want a meal for this occasion and so it was like I looked into the whole book really sort of research that other people have done and it's applied to various different scenarios and uh, a couple of things that resonated with me uh, one was about having not too many meetings and when you do have meetings make them small I've sat in endless meetings mm. where which drag on and they drag on partly because there are maybe a dozen or more people there all of them feeling they have to justify their presence at the meeting by having something to say and it just elongates it and really the decision will be made somewhere else anyway and you'll know well that experience of being in meetings where you don't even know who the other people are and so you're scared to to sort of put your hand up and say i'm convinced this is a terrible idea because that who's that who's that from the manchester office who's that you're scared to say anything right and so um and so it's generally in the service back to that control thing when people when we feel like we sort of have no control on what's going on about us that we're held hostage in endless meetings that's when we start being we start feeling like we just we can't enjoy our jobs you talked about ecological reasons being part of the reason why you decided to quit twitter so when did you become switched on about the environment i was like an animal rights campaigner when i was like 11 and then i was a vegetarian when i was 11 Basically, when all my mates started going to the pub at sort of 15, 16, I looked so young that I could never get into the pub. And so I used to collect for Greenpeace like two nights a week. So I, and so the big theme was probably acid rain then. It was sort of, you know, uh, late 80s, early 90s. So, so you know, I've, I've always sort of had that interest. But, um, you know, I was sort of, I was reflecting on what I wanted to do. And it would be very easy to just go into another job that's the same. And I thought, decidedly, I'm not going to do that. But also, I'm so inspired by what people like Greta Thunberg have done. And I think, actually, it's, it's, it's incredible that we'll look through this period of time, whatever the outcome, and we'll say, what an absence of leadership we had. What an absence of, like, figureheads who represented these things. David Attenborough's actually starting to do a little bit of it now. And you, as soon as you see Attenborough and Greta Thunberg different ends of the of life the book ends of life but you know you see it and you go oh right that's what leadership is that's like someone talking using their platform to talk about these things that's what leadership is and and it's 
how remarkable that a 17-year-old girl has, has, has sort of represented the first leadership we've seen in this. But I'm so inspired by what they've done. I'm like, okay, you know, it seems ridiculous just to pay homage to it and not do something on it. I thought, okay, well, do something on it. Well, so what are you going to do? I've, um, I, I posted that on LinkedIn, I posted that on Twitter, and I got so many incoming responses. You posted the, a call-out, essentially. I said, to oh, say. You know, if, if someone wants someone to work for free on some climate change stuff, let me know. And, uh, and it's been slightly overwhelming, but I've met, I've sort of been focusing my energies. The first thing I did is, like, right, I'm not going to work on anything app-related. Not that these, that's bad, but, you know, an app that's, like, trying to give you three thumbs up for doing your recycling on a Tuesday. I get it. It's charming. I don't want to be dismissive of it, but I want to do something that's, you know, disruptive. And, and, and so, like, I sort of I start set, creating some rules. So now when the next app contacted me, I'm like, thank you so much, but I'm, I'm not going to be doing that. I've met... Um, some re, uh, so three or four very different things that I'm seeing specifically what I could do to help them. So I met one, uh, I don't know if it, even if it's a charity, it's just like something that's got a very clear point to it. And it's like, okay, no one knows about that. Right, I wonder what I could do to connect you to people who could help you become a bit more famous. You know, and so just things like that where I can really clearly see, right, I, I could definitely have an impact there. Right, that one, right, I, I can phone, I can do the awkward work of phoning 100 people because I know that, that one of those people might be... So it's like working out where I can do some grunt work to help people, really. And are you talking about that as being your full-time job? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Uh, who knows? Let's see. I mean, I live a pretty modest life, so I don't own a car, I don't sort of own luxury jewellery or designer items so I've, I've and, and you've got stuff. you've got kids yeah 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 so um so yeah so you like there's responsibilities from that but and uh, do you i mean there are people aren't there who question the climate science do you do they yeah who? yeah there are out of a hundred a hundred percent of poli- of, of scientists don't disagree oh, no no i'm so not, I'd be interested who the uh, who whenever you talk about climate change and this will get a response you you questioning this when i talked about uh, climate change on Five Live recently on a programme I was presenting and we had a debate and accepting climate change effectively as a fact people were criticising me saying, sending me links saying read this, read this, read but this rightly I think this is why this notion that we should do and on the other hand about something that's unarguable and unequivocal and the only people who set about trying to challenge it are attention seekers people who have got a platform, people who are intent on serving their own interests. You look at, sort of, there's, there's a lot of money. The oil industry is the richest industry in the world. Is it any surprise that they've stirred up a lot of research? You know, I saw some research that said that, you know, paper bags are more carbon harmful than plastic bags. I wonder why? Because the oil industry produces plastic bags and so they fund that research. And so, you know, I, w- I worry about that and, and on the other hand side, because what it's done is it's given voice to people like Nigel Lawson, who has set about saying, former Chancellor has set about saying, oh, I'm not sure about the science of climate change. I mean, is this what we're doing? We're putting against the greatest intellect, people who've got two or three degrees, people who've done a lifetime of work, and we're putting just a man with an opinion as an equivalence. <laughs> 
I mean, that's to me, it's just it's it's deeply harmful, and and you know maybe that's one of the the downsides of social media. You know, to, to sort of to to turn it back on myself. That unfortunately, some of the platforms might give voice to. Um, to people who really don't deserve the oxygen of attention. So, yeah, and and to, Twitter certainly yeah, would, wouldn't so it? Climate change deniers would have a platform, yeah, yeah. have a home on Twitter. Well, it's why it's so, it's non-linear, isn't it? It's like, you know, Greta Thunberg wouldn't have the platform that she's got now, because if you consider the, let's work it out, you know, the she's outside a, uh, a government building in Stockholm, it would be what local news once it might get to national news when she hit a year it might get to international year news when she if there was a big enough crowd but it'd be on once wouldn't it and 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 actually in the course of sort of 14 15 months she's you know addressing the un she's addressing davos she's uh, and and a, to a large extent that is because we've just seen the whole of the way that human beings communicate and like the there's the the connections transformed but clearly there's downsides to it it's it's you know beware simple answers to complicated problems but you know there's there's not as easy as saying social media is bad social media is good it's like saying are humans bad or good it's it's so reductive it doesn't actually serve a purpose but as a final thought then arising from your your kind of new challenge you you're saying there is a lack of leadership Politically, you know, you've mentioned David Attenborough, you've mentioned Greta Thunberg. Where are our politicians in all this? Yeah, because the the challenge we've got is these. Um, I mean, there is some political leadership in the US. I'm I'm quite impressed with the Democrats have built this sort of Green New Deal, and and albeit that it's it's been packaged a bit over here, it's not cut through to the same extent over here. Um, there, there is there is leadership on it. It's just. The tragedy is, of it is going to be... I mean, look, you know, witness what we've just seen in Australia. This is at one degree temperature rise, one degree, and what we're seeing in Australia. And people are still arguing whether... The, troublemakers are still arguing whether this is real. And so it begs the question if we get... And probably, you know, you or I will only get to 2%, so we won't see the full extreme of this. Um, yeah, I, I do think there's a big absence of debate but it's really interesting how the debate has transformed even in the last four months about australia right you know if you look at it in australia people are now uh, having discussions about should we really be investing more in getting more oil out of the ground should we be should we be thinking about fracking more gas um coal's one of their big things right. isn't it in, in australia absolutely and i, I actually think it's because no one creates an opposition no one says australia is probably one of the best resourced countries in the world to shift to shift to renewables in fact they've they've just done a deal to supply all of the power to singapore with a under the ocean cable which is sort of the equivalent of london to morocco it's like this vast cable um so it's, like, it's so well equipped but i think and still until someone makes the equivalence of jobs in coal can be jobs in renewables then it looks like you're sort of giving something up for no no exchange bruce taisley been a real pleasure speaking to you thank you thank you Bruce Daisley, my thanks to him for his time. And if you enjoyed that, don't forget to check out some of the other episodes of Adrian Goldberg's talk show. You can also check out my other podcasts, When Sky Invented Football, The 21, which covers the story of the campaign to get justice for the victims of the Birmingham pub bombings, and PIY, Podcast It Yourself, all available where you generally get your podcasts. 
Thanks very much indeed for listening.